0: Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isger, and we've got a great podcast this morning. We're gonna be talking about the vaccine mandate cases that are on their way to the Supreme Court's emergency docket, and we're gonna have a fun conversation about the First Amendment in a classroom based on a pretty wild case, uh, a really interesting case. So stay tuned for that. We're not going to start with it because it's so interesting. We're going to make you wait till the end of the podcast uh, to to listen to it. But before that, some housekeeping. Um, You guys might not be aware of this, but it's almost Christmas. And I've got a gift idea for you. It is a gift of the dispatch, a gift subscription to the dispatch. Super easy to do. Go to thedispatch.com slash gift. Is that a slash or a backslash, Sarah? What's the technical... When it leans to the right.
1: <laughs> I, I feel like there's so many jokes there. Um, but uh, I have no idea is the answer. I think so if it leans to the right, then it's a slash. If it leans a to slash. the left, yeah.
0: Okay. LPC legendary producer Caleb has says it's a, has said it's a slash. So it's the dispatch.com right leaning slash gift. Okay, the dispatch.com slash gift. And the prices are just so reasonable. One year for a $100, one month for $10. Uh, a gift, a, a notification is emailed to the recipient. You can include a custom message. We can do email delivery that can be scheduled at a specific date and time. And I would really encourage you to do this. And please do this because um this is how the Advisory Opinions podcast that you know and love so much stays on the airwaves, if you can call what you're how you're listening to it the airwaves Uh, so we would really appreciate it if you do this and i love our most common compliment our most common positive feedback that we get is you've helped keep me sane or you've helped keep us sane and i love that uh so please send a gift to the dispatch uh, or gift the dispatch to a friend or family member it would be fantastic if you did the other thing is, just a brief update on our long-running counterinsurgency war on the comments section, or, or the feedback uh, with against the remnant. So Jonah's marvelous, marvelous podcast that is not quite the flagship of the Dispatch Podcast Network, we're catching up. So I would ask you to go ahead and go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, five stars please, and help us catch the remnant to finally demonstrate once and for all that we are the flagship. Okay, housekeeping out of the way, Sarah. We've had a lot of action, legal action since our last podcast. Um, we've got a uh, the CMS. This is the this is the entity that regulates Medicare and Medicaid. It's regulation mandating the vaccine for healthcare workers is now heading up to the Supreme Court after a circuit split. Two different circuits have come out differently on the legality of the CMS vaccine mandate. And we also have a really big long Sixth Circuit opinion. And now remember the Sixth Circuit is the circuit that won the lottery on uh, to to be the circuit that that handles the OSHA vaccine mandate. Well, what's really a test and mask mandate with a vaccine opt-out. Um, a majority, two out of three uh, members of the panel, of the panel um, upheld the OSHA vaccine mandate, and now that's on its way to the Supreme Court. So that's where we are. CMS, OSHA, Sarah, how do you want to start?
1: All right. Well, we had some inklings about how the OSHA mandate was going to go, at least at the Sixth Circuit. A uh, couple housekeeping notes. One... Husband of the pod is involved in this case. So let me just put out there uh, that conflict of interest that I have. He represents, uh, I think, 26 business associations. Um, NFIB is one of them. I think American Trucking Association is one of them. Uh, So I don't know, and like 24 others or something. We don't have a ton of pillow talk about this case, so while I am (laughs) conflicted unquestionably, I actually don't have a lot of inside information to share with anyone about litigation strategy, uh, but I wanted to tell everyone that uh, at the outset. Second, let's remember how this happened, right? So the Fifth Circuit stays the implementation of the OSHA vaccine mandate before the lottery commences, and the Sixth Circuit wins the lottery, or loses, depending on how you want to look at that. (laughs) And then we've all been waiting to see what the Sixth Circuit would do. There was a petition for this to go on banc right off the bat, basically, um, to have the whole Sixth Circuit decide it. The Weirdly, we got the on banc denial first with a dissent from Judge Sutton. That dissent made very clear how the panel was going to turn out because <laughs> Judge Sutton was like, we need to take this because obviously this shouldn't go into effect. And it's like, oh, well, wait, if, huh. Uh, so not surprisingly, then a couple of days later, we get the panel. Uh, worth doing just a couple seconds on who the judges are. Judge Stranch wrote the opinion. If that name sounds familiar, it's because that's the judge that our most recent guest, the Solicitor General of Virginia, clerked for. Kind of fun. Uh, she's a... Obama appointee, Judge Stranch. Uh, Also in the majority, Judge Gibbons, a Bush appointee, W. Bush. In dissent, Joan Larson, a Trump appointee. Fun fact, David, this was an all-female panel.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: It doesn't happen that often, and I thought I'd I'd point it out. Uh, It's happening more often, and I like it. Um. Okay. So here's why I'm pointing out the judges, because as I mentioned, Judge Larson is in the dissent here, two to one, and she was on the shortlist for the Supreme Court, especially for that Barrett seat. She was confirmed with Barrett. They did their hearing together. Uh, She clerked for Justice Scalia, is often described as sort of the, I don't know, the most Scalia of his former clerks. And um, I, I say all that. By the way, she served as deputy assistant attorney general in the office of legal counsel during the W administration. Um, she looks a lot like many of the justices on the Supreme Court. Mm. And she's in the dissent. Right. That is pretty, pretty relevant. As in, without ever having read this thing, I kind of already feel like I know where it's going because Judge Larson, I think, shares her judicial philosophy with, uh, (laughs) including but not limited to, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch, probably Justice Kavanaugh, almost certainly a little Justice Barrett thrown in there, maybe some Thomas. I mean, (laughs) the list goes on. Uh, so I think that there's a, a pretty good chance that the Supreme Court agrees with Judge Larson. The question then is, do they take it in this emergency posture? And as we talked about last week, David, we have two votes: Judge Kavanaugh and Barrett, who are not dogging emergency posture cases. Yes. And then we have Roberts, Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor, who are not dogging the cases themselves. So there's basically these three votes on this emergency basis. So that's why they may not take it, even though I think that there's plenty of votes to reinstate the Fifth Circuit stay on the merits, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's this is a really interesting case and decision uh, on a couple of levels. Um, one is, it, you know, I think there is the Biden administration has done itself some favors in, in on the facts in this way, it isn't quite the mandate that you think it is. So it actually has some flexibility to it. So, um, yes, and here's no. the,
1: yeah, explain the flexibility, but I'm not sure I agree how flexible that is.
0: So here's the paragraph from the a key paragraph from the factual, um, the statement of facts in the opinion. The, the ETS does not, this is the emergency emergency temporary rule, does not require anyone to be vaccinated. Rather, the ETS allows covered employers, employers with 100 or more employees, to determine for themselves how best to minimize the risk of contracting COVID-19 at their workplaces. Employers, employers have the option to require unvaccinated workers to wear a mask on the job and test weekly. They can also require those employer, those workers to do their jobs exclusively from home and workers who work exclusively outdoors are exempt. The employer, not OSHA, can require that its workers get vaccinated, something that countless employers across the country have already done. So in other words, there is a home work option. If you're working outside, you're not going to be unco- covered in the masking and testing slash vaccine requirement. So it is it is objectively more flexible than, say, for example, the CMS rule that we're gonna be dealing with in a bit here in the podcast. So there is some flexibility there in that way.
1: Why I think legally it's irrelevant. Okay. Legally, I think that flexibility is irrelevant because I think you could take out the vaccine portion. Assume there was no vaccine in existence. And OSHA promulgating an ETS that requires masking and weekly testing, I think suffers from actually most, if not all. I'm trying to think here in my head of like those like sort of six reasons we were giving. Yeah, I think all of the same problems. Uh, Walmart has uh, roughly 1.6 million employees. Amazon has roughly 1.5 million employees in the United States. It's a lot. Do you know what it looks like to set up a weekly testing regime (laughs) across the country. If you're Walmart or Amazon, Apple, of course, number three, I think, uh, in employees on the fortune list, although I know the fortune list isn't by employees. Um, So when you are talking about whether OSHA has this regulatory authority, you run into the same problems. Is this a grave danger? Do they have congressional authorization? The vaccine? Makes this sort of a culture war issue, but legally, I don't think it's relevant.
0: Oh, I I, I agree with you that I think that the the really co- on the on the fundamental core issues of does OSHA have the authority to take measures to control the spread of COVID nineteen in their workpla- in the workplace, or to require employers to take measures to um, control the spread of COVID nineteen in the workplace? That is the really the ultimate question at the top level. Now, if you're going to then, if you're going to say, for example, that this, that, that, um, Congress has the power to, to, um, say require exactly this kind of mandate. It delegated that power to OSHA properly. OSHA then has lawfully exercised that power. If you're getting through the top sort of questions that we talk about, where the flexibility of this comes in, comes in in sort of the more standard administrative law review of it all.
1: Yeah. Is it reasonable, basically? Is it
0: reasonable? Is there a rational basis, et cetera, et cetera? That's I don't know. where the well, Biden yeah, administration, I think, helped itself.
1: Well, look, Omicron is helping the Biden administration from a very practical sense because, True. as we've said repeatedly on this podcast, judges are people too. And judges live in communities and go to the grocery store and, uh, you know, have their kids' schools being closed again, et cetera. Um, I, you know, I just think this idea that the or testing that I've heard out there, it's like, well, it's not a vaccine mandate. True. But and that's a very important political talking point. It's just not that impressive of a legal talking point. Um, Also, I've dug into the data the best I can, David, and the data is not great on this um, for all the reasons that I have gone off on issue polling. Footnote. If you want to see why I've gone off on issue polling, please subscribe to my <laughs> newsletter, The Sweep, uh, at thedispatch.com. Uh, issue polling is exactly bad on something like this. You're asking people sort of their feelings it, about something that could or could not happen in the future. It's just really hard to get good data. I, I preface all of this. I've read a lot of polling on this about how many people are really going to refuse to get the vaccine, refuse weekly testing and quit their jobs over this to go work for an employer who's under 100 people or however else, an outside job, whatever. The number is clearly small. I mean, 70 plus percent of American adults at this point are vaccinated to some extent. Um, But I think the number might be up to five percent. And again, think back to that Walmart big number or the Amazon big number five percent of their employees quitting suddenly and you don't got no Amazon Prime there's no two-hour delivery to your home (laughs) uh it would be a huge disruption to the American economy if five percent of Walmart employees quit over the course of a two-week period
0: well absolutely absolutely uh it would um but you're 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 exactly right about that, and that's part that might be part of the judges or people too, for sure. Equation.
1: As I mentioned, my husband represents the American Trucking Association. Imagine losing any <laughs> real chunk of our truckers out there. We need more truckers, not fewer. Thank you, truckers.
0: <laughs> well, that is absolutely the case. Now, we have had employer mandates in many employers, and I don't believe in I. I This is a good assignment for our listeners. What has been the general opt-out or refute, quit? What has been the rate of of employees quitting over vaccine mandates in private employers and government employers that have implemented the mandate? I don't think it's been 5%.
1: I don't think any of them have actually hit the deadline yet. The federal government extended the deadline and all of the private employers I know have not actually made it a do this or be fired. Of the large employers, I'm talking about, you know, I, I'm sure there are small employers who have done that. Um, but of these sort of large economy shifting American companies, I don't think we've had the or quit moment
0: I think the military the military has gotten very close, and I think it is its percentage is well above ninety five percent on on compliance in the military, but that's the military. so yeah, this is this is going to be a very interesting uh it's a very interesting question. I believe some big of some of the big health providers. In the Northeast, have had their deadlines hit. Um, oh, perhaps. So, yeah. Well, and so also,
1: I, th- I mean, again, imagine with 1.6 million employees ha- having any way to sort through um, religious objections.
0: Oh gosh, yeah, it's a lot. It's, it's a, lot. a lot. It's a lot. Which it's is putting a
1: lot on on employers that are making up a large part of the American economy, not only to all of us who use them but just from a workforce standpoint
0: which is why it was it's always been the best course of action that people choose to be vaccinated
1: <laughs> and to be clear a lot of these companies um have vaccine mandates might be the wrong word vaccine incentives they want their employees to be vaccinated they're offering money for these employees to go get vaccinated they're having people come to their facilities to you know jab people in the arm but they don't want to have to fire their employees they don't want to have to set up testing facilities weekly yada yada
0: um so on the legal merits of this it's a really interesting majority opinion because uh if you're if you're a true student of this podcast if you are somebody who can remember all of our extended discussions from months weeks and months ago you will remember our discussion of the vaccine mandate going something like this and we'll just call it the vaccine mandate and essentially is going like this that Where commerce clause and non-delegate, if you're talking about where commerce clause, uh, where commerce commerce clause precedent has been, and where non-delegation doctrine has been for a while, OSHA has a pretty strong case. If you're thinking about where commerce clause and non-delegation doctrine is likely to go with this court, the case seems to get weaker. (laughs) So, in other words. If you're talking about how broadly co- the Commerce Clause has been read um, for d- generations now, OSHA the OSHA's case looks stronger and stronger. If you're talking about how non-delegation doctrine has been read for generations, OSHA's um, case looks stronger. If you're talking about w- the judicial philosophy of the specific justices on the court and where they have been pushing the law, OSHA's case starts to get weaker. And I'll, I'll give you a, a one of the, one of the better um, illustrations of that is in the majority opinion's brief discussion or its discussion of uh, non, the non-delegation doctrine. And it's this sentence. The Supreme Court has only twice invoked the non-delegation doctrine to strike down a statute. When were those cases? Panama Refining Company versus Ryan, 1935. Schechter Poultry Corporation versus United States, 1935. Um, so that's kind of the dynamic of this case. And it's a dynamic that we've identified from the beginning here, which is for a long time, the Supreme Court has granted these state, these executive branch agencies, granted Congre- Congress enormous authority over the, in, uh, over the economy through the Commerce Clause granted congress the ability to delegate delegate that authority to these executive branch agencies but there has been there have been ample there's ample evidence that the current court isn't so in love with that anymore and so i feel like that's our dynamic right now sarah is is the court going to continue to push in the direction that it has been pushing if so i don't see this doctrine survi- this uh, vaccine mandate surviving if it sort of rests where the law has been for a long time, then the mandate will will go down on other grounds, perhaps the most narrow possible grounds that we've talked about before. Um, You know, was this truly an emergency, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the overall, that's sort of the the global takeaway I took from the opinion.
1: So the uh, appeal's obviously heading to the Supreme Court, and then we wait. It'll sit on the emergency docket. In the meantime, uh, merits-wise, it will continue in the Sixth Circuit.
0: And in the meantime, if you're not vaccinated with (laughs) Omicron out there, please go get vaccinated. Some of the charts that I'm seeing about what's happening, for example, in New York on the contrast in medical outcomes between those who have been vaccinated and those who've not been vaccinated, it's very, very stark. It's very stark. So. Regardless of how this OSHA case comes out, um, if you haven't done it, now would be a great time to do it.
1: Yeah. And look, get boosted too, D.C. So I feel like I knew people who had COVID over the course of the last 20 months, but they weren't in my like core inner circle of people I see all the time. Everyone in my core inner circle of people I see all the time appears to have COVID suddenly um, of the people who were vaccinated but not boosted. Now, they're all doing fine. Nobody has severe illness at all. It's, as one friend described it, uh, bad, cold, weak flu, who was double vaccinated. So definitely worth getting double vaccinated for sure. But let me make a plug for being boosted because so far uh, this boosted household is doing okay.
0: Yes, so far this boosted household is doing okay. We we have not had the Omicron wave hit us yet much in Tennessee. It seems it's to be It's coming. Hitting- Oh, I know. Oh, I know. All right. Um, CMS is a little bit different. CMS is, this is a mandate that is tied to funding. It's tied to Medicare and Medicaid funding. And the issues are a little bit different here. This one, this is a mandate that is much less flexible than the OSHA mandate. It's also dealing directly with um, medical professionals. And it is tied to federal funding. So my own view of this case is it has fewer top-line problems than the OSHA case.
1: Like none of them in a lot of ways. I mean, this is how, you could argue, this is how OSHA is supposed to function. And the private business vaccine mandate is an example of how you end up losing your case like they're actually perfect to contrast each other with if you were giving a law school exam of something that's uh, would be closer to a core osha ets power not osha cms sorry um versus osha's example of like or ah, er, i don't think so
0: yeah i mean just let's just make this really super basic the osha rule is going to is going to reach you if you have 100 or more employees no matter if you have no contacts with the government at all <laughs> or if your only contact with the government is like calling the fire department if your building is on fire or driving on the roads to get to your to get to the workplace so in other words you're you're sitting there and you've created libertarian inc and libertarian inc is 105 employees and you don't have any contact with the government you're in fact deeply opposed to any kind of government funding at all ever you will never take a government contract at all this is this is as close as you're going to get to almost like a police power type exercise of power from you know that's that's run through the commerce clause here and so that's why this has this is the OSHA rule is fundamentally different in so many ways from the CMS rule the CMS rule is Here's a big pile of federal money, and you don't get this federal money unless you're going to do X, Y, and Z, which is the conditions placed on federal dollars. There is a a long history of placing Boku conditions on federal dollars.
1: The most famous of which, South Dakota v. Dole, that is uh, the drinking age tied to federal highway funds. Right. Don't get me wrong. I see the connection. But barely.
0: <laughs> uh, and
1: that was a constitutional condition.
0: Right. That was held to be constitutional. So I think the que- the question in the CMS case is not going to be, you're not going to have the big top line constitutional questions like you have in OSHA. What you will have are the standard administrative procedure, administrative law type questions. Um, was this promulgated properly? Was it? It's just, a, it's just a different and simpler case. And so let me put it this way. If the Supreme Court upholds OSHA, it would shock me if it didn't uphold CMS, but it could old, uphold CMS without upholding the OSHA vaccine mandate. And that could make a lot of that could still make a lot of sense legally because they're located in different sources of power.
1: That is a good way to phrase it. They are located in different sources of power. And Libertarian Inc., which grows its own wheat for only its own consumption uh, (laughs) with its 105 employees, uh, just has a much, much stronger case.
0: Yes. Libertarian Inc., yeah, absolutely. But the instant that Libertarian Inc. opens up a clinic and takes Medicare dollars, (laughs) it's in...
1: Also, (laughs) they need to change their name.
0: They would need to change their name. Exactly. 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 So, shall we move on to our fun discussion of First Amendment rights in the classroom?
1: Yes! I've been looking forward to this.
0: Do you want to set up this case in the discussion?
1: I would love to. So, we're back in the Fifth Circuit. Come on down to Texas. In fact, come on down to Klein Oaks High School. And we're just going to have a fine time... uh, Uh, defecating as, um, Jonah would say, (laughs) defecating, defecating on Klein Oaks high school. Why you ask? (laughs) Obviously we're going to get into some of the absurdity happening in their classrooms, but perhaps more importantly, it's because I, as the president of the Memorial high school orchestra beat Klein Oaks orchestra. I mean, just like a drum badly year after year. Uh, yes. So they are in our football, uh, Orchestra divisions, etc. So,
0: and and you you laugh, listeners, but those orchestra <laughs> rivalries in Texas—they're they're,
1: they're intense. It's like they haven't made Friday Night Lights um, because our orchestra concerts were generally on Thursdays, but like it's coming to a screen near oh. you.
0: I mean, there was even. I, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there'd be some debate as to whether those. Football stadiums were really football stadiums, or were they orchestra <laughs> stadiums used for football so, the following day?
1: So true. I just, I have so <laughs> many memories of taking the bus out to Klein Oaks. So, uh, suck it, Klein Oaks. Um, <laughs> here we go. So, in Klein Oaks High School, Oliver is a young Black woman who was enrolled as a student. She objects to the Pledge of Allegiance because she feels that the portion declaring America to be a nation, quote, under God fails to recognize many religions, and does not match her personal religious beliefs. She further believes that, contrary to the words of the pledge, there is not freedom and justice for all in America because she and other Black people continue to experience widespread racial persecution. Therefore, she declines to stand for or recite the pledge. Let's just stop right there, David. hmm Black letter, textbook, First Amendment law, um, This is the black armband case. This is Tinker. Right,
0: or West Virginia v. Barnett.
1: Well, I mean, it's literally West Virginia v. Barnett. (laughs) West Virginia v. Barnett is about the Pledge of Allegiance and not standing for it. Done. Tinker's wearing the black armband. Done. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, but there was a student in my school who uh, was a year below me, refused to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. They tried to expel him. And me, being the First Amendment lawyer that I was at 16 years old, was like, oh, hell no. Um, <laughs> and he was allowed to sit for the Pledge of Allegiance because I really liked, I wouldn't say actually that I liked constitutional law except to the extent constitutional law could be used as a cudgel against authority figures, particularly within a public school. For some reason, that did bring me, that so much joy warmed my heart. Okay. In 2017, Oliver took... Mr. Arnold's sociology class. (sighs) The Klein Oaks principal held a meeting with Oliver's teachers, including Arnold, and instructed them that Arnold was not required to participate in the pledge. Nonetheless, a month later, Arnold gave the class an assignment to transcribe the words of the Pledge of Allegiance. Although Arnold claims that the assignment had a pedagogical purpose, the district court found that his intentions were genuinely disputed. So he also said some things. Okay. During class the next day, (laughs) Arnold told his students that anyone who did not complete the pledge assignment would receive a grade of zero. He then engaged in an extended diatribe, um, which they assume for the purpose of this case was uh, aimed at Oliver. He lamented his views that the decline, uh, sorry, he lamented what he viewed as the decline of American values Decried a variety of people whose attitudes he deemed to be un-American, including communists, supporters of Sharia law, foreigners who refuse to assimilate into American culture, sex offenders, and those <laughs> that argue for their rehabilitation. That's that's a large list, David. It's a lot. Um,
0: <laughs> I can can you want to re- Can we just read some of the quote? Some yeah. of the quote here. Yeah. Uh, this is this is this is the teacher, by the way. Um,
1: <laughs> to be clear, the te- to be the clear, adult this is the, the teacher. Yeah.
0: If you tell me two countries you'd rather go to, I will pay your way there if they're communist or socialist. Most of Europe is socialist and it's crumbling, or it's communism. N- news to Europe, by the way. But if you ever come back, you have to pay me twice what it cost me to send you there. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things I complain about. So when it comes time in November, I go vote or I protest in writing in legal. There are ways we do it in America where a country will crumble is when people coming into a country do not assimilate to that country. That doesn't mean you forget Day of the Dead and whatever cultures you maintain your language. That doesn't mean that. But you're not going to drive on the left side of the road. You're not going to impose Sharia law because it's not this country. But what is happening, and I can say it a lot more than you because I've lived longer, it's almost as if America's assimilating to those countries.
1: Rutro. So <laughs> the assignment was you had to transcribe the words of the Pledge of Allegiance and contemplate Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA in class. Uh, the purpose, the stated pedagogical purpose from, as Arnold put it, uh, is that sometimes people recite things every day out of habit and without thinking about what they are actually saying. Uh, David, um, when I first read that, I read that part before I read any of the other stuff he was saying, and I assumed this would be a conservative student objecting to a born in the USA, you know, Bruce Springsteen dog (laughs) in America, and how maybe the Pledge of Allegiance, maybe we're not living up to, um, our stated values in the Pledge of Allegiance as Bruce Springsteen is pointing out in Born in the USA. But that's not the case. The teacher appears not to know what Born in the USA is about. Uh, Yeah. Not a poetry teacher.
0: Yeah. It's actually pretty common misunderstanding about Born in the USA. Um, Born in the USA is not a America, heck yeah, anthem. It is not. Um. Okay. This case, Sarah, is really interesting. It is very, very interesting. And here how, here's how I have tried to. Tr-
1: Wait, I'm sorry. Tried- I just pulled up the lyrics to Born in the USA. And if you're like singing along with this song and you think <laughs> this is a pro-USA, got in a little hometown jam. So they put a rifle in my hand sent me off to a foreign land to go and kill the yellow man. Yeah, America! F yeah! No! What? How can you get confused by that?
0: Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Now, here's what's interesting about this case, Sarah. Um, I'm, you can actually, in classrooms, you can compel student speech.
1: Of course you can. Because otherwise, yeah. how would you complete any assignment? So, for instance, if you this were a handwriting assignment in third grade and you use the Pledge of Allegiance um, as your handwriting assignment so that everyone is writing the same thing and you're judging whether their ease are facing the correct way, that's not compelled speech. There's a pedagogical purpose. You have to have them write something down. You've chosen the Pledge of Allegiance. No big deal.
0: You could, I would say, as, uh, if you're teaching civics, you might could require people to memorize the Pledge of Allegiance, or the National Anthem.
1: Gettysburg Address. Gettysburg
0: anything. Address. You know, all of these things. And so, in fact, you can also ask people to make arguments or require people to make arguments they don't believe in. So I'll I'll give you a good example. This wasn't a state school, but I, when I was teaching at law school, one of the things we had to do was we had so I, I'm teaching an, a class on legal methods and advocacy. So we had to have students squaring off against each other in a particular case. And so I put together a fact pattern, you know, this was going to be our, our case for the semester, and students chose their sides, but it had to be balanced. <laughs> and so some folks, I had to say, you're on this side of the case. I'm so sorry if you don't necessarily agree with this side, but you're on this side of the case. So you can actually ask people to play or require people to play devil's advocate as a classroom exercise. You can require people to make the other side's argument as a classroom exercise. So why isn't she losing, Sarah? Why isn't she losing?
1: Well, because we're talking about things that are clearly on one side or the other, but it starts to mingle, mingle in the middle. you know, there are, I, you, I think, again, I think the two examples we gave, very constitutional. But what about an um, economics class telling your students that, you know, they are encouraged to believe that supply and demand curves are a fact of economics?
0: Incur- oh, OK. Encouraging people to believe. Yeah, right. I mean, in I mean, other words, not just you're try-
1: encouraging, right? Like if they can't. You're
0: requiring, right.
1: You're requiring them to believe in supply and demand curves, really, because the assignment is, um, you know, how much butter versus guns can this country make? Right. And the person's <laughs> like, I don't believe that capitalism is actually correct as an economic theory. I don't believe that supply and demand curves work that way. And you are forcing me to believe in That as a fact, I mean, obviously, that's one that I think is less culturally divisive, but take climate change, take uh, evolution and biology. There's all sorts of things that students have to write down as being scientifically, factually true that some minority of students may not agree with. We have decided that's pretty constitutional. Yeah. If it's widely accepted.
0: at the very least, of course, you can say you're going to have to demonstrate that you understand the argument. Yes. You have to You have to demonstrate that you understand the concept of the supply and demand curve. But on the um, other hand,
1: to, we don't, um, while you may need to demonstrate that you understand the arguments that Joe Biden is making to run for president or Donald Trump is making to run for president um, on your government exam. Uh, We absolutely do not make you say Donald Trump will be the best president, has been the best president that has ever existed in the United States. That's unconstitutional.
0: Right. So I think what's happening here, I think the line here, this blurry fuzzy, I mean, this is blurry and fuzzy. I think the, I think the line here is if you, uh, you, all of what we just said is true as a general proposition. But let's go back to my let's go back to my classroom. I you're you're Sarah, you're a student in my classroom and I have to assign devil's advocate positions. And I intentionally choose you to make the devil's advocate position because I don't like your politics. <laughs> and I want you so in other words if I'm targeting you for negative treatment because of your political point of view even if it would be otherwise a lawful exercise of my authority, then it starts to look more like retaliation. Um, and, and, entire, and in fact, the entire concept of retaliation is a way that a lawful exercise of authority becomes unlawful but, when it is. Yes, but.
1: But for instance, um, this. Travis Fletcher, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, I did, in fact, have a crush on you in seventh grade when we did that <laughs> debate together about euthanasia. Regardless, you missed your
0: chance, Travis. You missed you your missed chance.
1: It. It's over. No, Travis is wonderful. Uh, I walked by your house the other day, Thanksgiving. That wasn't creepy. That sounded really creepy the way I just said that. It's on the way that to did. our old elementary school. It's not. And sorry. And
0: yeah. Ca- Caleb, oh. leave it in. Leave it in.
1: <laughs> Sarah, being creepy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Travis sent me a mix CD when I was in law school to help me study for finals. And it like, it transformed my musical taste and really helped me through 1L finals. So thank you, Travis, for that. Um, okay. So Travis and I were the most opinionated people in our seventh grade class. I know it'll be hard to believe that I was there. Uh, and so the teacher assigned us in this debating assignment, the opposite positions from the ones we held because she knew what positions we held. That is not retaliation. That's pedagogical. And so you see the line can be, I mean, that's very motive-based. What's in the mind of the teacher? Is she assigning me the opposite of my stated position uh, as a learning exercise or because she wants to show me the facts? Uh, That's, I mean, my goodness, how is a judge, how is a court supposed to litigate that?
0: It's hard it's hard, and I can tell you from personal experience litigating classroom type issues um you better bring the proof you better bring some serious proof that this is- pol- that there is a politically motivated um targeting that there is politically motivated targeting here in and, and in my cases, I brought the proof I brought the proof here is one of my favorites um a Los Angeles Community College uh, speech and debate teacher gives a student an assignment. Now, if you want to talk about a lame assignment, this is it, Sarah. Give a 10-minute or a 10 or 15 minutes, whatever it was. Give a speech on the topic of your choice. The to- so whatever it is, whatever you want to talk about, you can talk about it for 10 or 15 minutes. Um, parameters, guys parameters would be helpful. So anyway, this student who's a brand new Christian, he just became a Christian, decides to give about a 10 or 15 minute talk, however long it was, about his Christian faith. Um at which point after it's over, the professor calls him a fascist bastard. Yes. And then refuses to grade his paper and writes on the grading sheet, ask God what your grade is. Okay. That was a case.
1: <laughs> Why do people go into teaching if they feel like this towards students?
0: I know. It makes me sad. I, oh, it's awful. That's awful. We we won. We won that case. Um, here's another one. Here's another one. A student in a Missouri in Missouri State University, um, is given an assignment, in she, where she is going to be required to write her state legislator. To advocate for a position she did not agree with.
1: Okay, yep, that one's obvious.
0: That's obvious. That's
1: compelled speech. Yep, that's a no no.
0: That's compelled speech. And when she refused, Sarah, she was brought up on charges for an insufficient commitment to diversity and um, brought into a hearing where she wasn't even allowed to have her own mother in the room to support her, much less anyone else, and queried about her religious beliefs at length and then told she had to change her beliefs. Before she could graduate, um, so that's over the line. <laughs>
1: cool,
0: cool. Yeah. So the bottom line here it would the the bottom line here is if you're going to be making an argument based on a unsat an assignment that you don't like, you better be bringing some real evidence of political targeting, some very substantial evidence of political targeting. Um. And interesting, you know, that the the teacher's little tirade there appears to have been really the thing that tipped it over. Um, and, well,
1: because that's the evidence, again, you can have your students yep. uh, memorize the pledge, write down the pledge, all of that thing. It's going to go to motive. That's going to be the difference between constitutional compelled speech and unconstitutional compelled speech. And so the tirade against foreigners uh, goes to the motivation of why he created this assignment as foreigners Flawed as it was, um, but at least the kids maybe got to listen to some Bruce Springsteen. So, (laughs) okay, so here's how this case is turning out Uh, it was a panel at the Fifth Circuit and an unusual panel uh, because normally the Fifth Circuit is, you know, obviously quite conservative. But in this case, the panel was Wiener, Dennis, and Duncan all-male panel, I will note. Uh, Weiner and Dennis considered two of, well, no, they are the two most liberal judges on the Fifth Circuit. Duncan may be the most or one of the most conservative. Weiner and Dennis say that the case can go to trial, that there are factual issues to be resolved, qualified immunity doesn't attach, all of this stuff. Uh, Duncan dissents. So it goes up on a petition for rehearing on Bonk, be heard by the whole Fifth Circuit, and uh, quite the breakdown. So seven judges voted in favor of rehearing, as in uh, presumably voting against this case going to trial, as in the student loses. Those judges are a who's who of Federalist Society members: Jones, Smith, Elrod, Duncan, Engelhard, Oldham, and Wilson. And the 10 voting against rehearing, so the student at least wins to get to go to court, though she has to prove her case at court and prove that that quote actually happened and all sorts of other stuff. We presume at this stage that her factual allegations are true. Uh, 10 against Owen, conservative. Stewart, pretty liberal. Dennis, pretty liberal. Southwick, kind of in the middle. Haynes in the middle. Grace Higginson. Costa, which, who is friend of the pod. Greg Costa. And then, David, Willet and Ho. Now, remember, we're finding that qualified immunity doesn't attach if you're voting against rehearing on box. So we know why Willet's up in there.
0: Well, and also Willett likes free speech, Sarah.
1: <laughs> um, but I wanted to read you some of Judge Ho's denial because he is a Trump appointee, undoubtedly one of the most conservative judges on the Fifth Circuit friend of the pod, even though he's never been on the pod. And I hope he's not mad at me for saying he's a friend of the pod. He's certainly a friend of the Keller household. Um, So let me read you some of this. Viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the plaintiff, a public school teacher punished a student for refusing to embrace certain views on America, religion, and race. And there are countless other examples nationwide. Some teachers require students to view themselves and others differently because of their race notwithstanding our nation's commitment to racial equality and colorblindness. Others forbid students from using biological pronouns and other terms that, quote, invalidate a person's gender identity, notwithstanding the widely held view that biological pronouns invalidate no one but are dictated by science, faith, grammar, or tradition. Some teachers force students to express views deeply offensive to their faith, and still others compel students to endorse certain political positions. And in this case, these stories are allegations not proven in a court of law, but they are allegations of constitutional violations that plaintiffs are entitled to pursue. They deserve their uh, day in court, not summary dismissal under a misguided application of qualified immunity. It should go without saying that forcing a public school student to embrace a particular political view serves no legitimate pedagogical function and is forbidden by the First Amendment. Um... This is a very conservative argument. Even though the student in this case is having a liberal objection to the assignment, Judge Ho is making the conservative case that like, look, most of the kids that are going to run into problems at this point are holding conservative viewpoints running into problems.
0: Well, what he's very cleverly doing is showing that when you're, when you're evaluating a First Amendment case, what you, don't, you should not view it entirely through the prism of the politics of the person asserting the right because there is an underlying principle at stake that can apply across the spectrum so you know one day today it might be a, a student objecting to the to the pledge of allegiance tomorrow it might be a student objecting to some sort of privilege walk um and so that these first amendment doctrines apply to all of us and it's a very i think it's a very important and and smart way of stating that fact in a case that would be otherwise be seen by an awful lot of pe- political conservatives as opposed to sort of judicial conservatives, but political conservatives is quite explosive. Um, and I, I, let me try to draw a line, a distinction here.
1: Wait, wait, sorry. I want, you to, I want you to draw that distinction, but I want to read from the dissenters, the ones who wanted to take it on bonk, where the student might not get to go to court, pro-qualified immunity. Because it's not really. And I just want to state their case because this is Judge Duncan, the judge who dissented on the panel, writing the now dissent from denial to rehear and like vindicate his dissent. And it's just, it's a great two paragraphs. In our circuit, public school teachers can make students pledge allegiance to Mexico, but can't make students write down our own pledge. The first assignment is a cultural and educational exercise, citing a 2017 Fifth Circuit opinion but the second is a compelled patriotic statement forbidden by the First Amendment, citing this. A teacher who gives the first assignment merits qualified immunity, but a teacher who gives the second will have to convince a jury that he had a, quote, pedagogical purpose. I assume the reverse is also true. So a teacher can make students pledge allegiance to the American flag as a cultural and educational exercise, but can't make students write down the Mexican pledge if he wants to promote el patriotismo. (laughs) Our law in this area is, in other words, a dumpster fire. We should have taken this case on bog to put it out. Then we could have addressed in a more coherent way how the First Amendment applies to student speech and public school curricula—an important and developing field. For reasons that baffle me, a majority of my colleagues declined the opportunity.
0: That's those are those are some good paragraphs right there. I've got to say,
1: dumpster those fire are, in yeah. A Fifth Circuit opinion. I mean, what's not to love about the Fifth Circuit these days? But
0: I don't read those paragraphs as necessarily him saying she loses.
1: I totally agree. That's why I wanted to read it, because in explaining what hearing a a petition for en banc would mean versus denying it, I was sort of putting words that actually were not in their mouth. But I would say overall, the tone of the dissent in this case is that, like, teachers have to be able to assign stuff and we can't have every student walking into court every time they don't like an assignment and claiming it's because it violates their all of 15 years thought out ideology uh no it's just high school guys just do the work you're not going to agree with every assignment whether it's climate change or my supply and demand curve or whatever else we just can't litigate all of these things
0: yeah i think the line that ho is getting at is in is something like this. I do not want teachers using their pedagogical authority to force people to assert the truth of the matter as opposed to an understanding of the matter.
1: Yes, although I think in this case, even the facts that she alleged them, I'll show my cards here, I think she loses a trial. Even the facts that she alleges them, she had to write down the pledge and contemplate in class W- what the pledge means. She, it, she refused to write down the pledge. That's it.
0: Right. Right. I, I, it's going to be very interesting to me, the extent of what, it, cause there, there's other evidence here. Um, that is, you know, other evidence of retaliation that's discussed. Um, so my, my view would be I'm, As a philosophical matter, I am with ho on this, with this caveat. I understand the distinction between truth of the matter asserted versus understanding of the matter asserted. But if you're going to be saying that a teacher is backdooring me into truth as opposed to understanding, you got to bring it. As I said earlier, you just got to bring the evidence. So you're going to have an overwhelming sort of... um, you're going to have a rebuttable, strong presumption, but rebuttable—a very strong presumption of pedagog legitimate pedagogical purpose, but it's rebuttable. But it's rebuttable. It's just, I, and I don't know that that's quite enough. There's a, you know, if the teacher was kind of clever, what he'd say is any the combination,
1: of any any amount, amount of clever.
0: clever, any amount of clever. If the teacher had any amount of clever, he would say, no, 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 you've misunderstood the assignment.
1: That's right. Here
0: are contrasting visions.
1: And I want you to sit in class and contemplate how those two interact. Yes. I mean, this actually was a good assignment. I can see any number of teachers because it's fun. You read the Pledge of Allegiance, you rock out to Bruce Springsteen, and then you ask yourself what it means to have both of these represent the United States of America, a vision of the United States of America, totally constitutional to write an essay about that, totally constitutional to even assign students which side of that argument they are on, BT-dubs.
0: But, you know, this reminds me of one of the great quotes in all of film, Sarah. And it comes from the movie, This is Spinal Tap, which is, have you seen it, by the way? It's more like my generation movie.
1: Um, Like only maybe 24 times?
0: Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Well, then you know this, you know, this line, there's such a fine line between clever and stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And so I feel like we might be right around that line here in this case, because if you are trying to get people to compare and contrast sort of the principles and the ideas and sort of the tension inherent, or is there a tension between like the saying the pledge and then absolutely sort of ripping a particular period in American history which I think there's nothing at all inconsistent between those two things, but it's a fascinating kind of discussion. That is, that's one thing. It's another thing to say, you won't stand for the pledge. You won't, huh? You don't like America? Well, here, you write the pledge. You write it. And that's a different thing. I mean, and if it's a, "Um, you're writing this pledge because you're not standing for this pledge, that's, I mean, you're in West Virginia v. Barnett territory, and I'm rallying to your aid. Um, so that's, to me, that's the the difference here.
1: Here's where I come down, David. I'm curious. Juror David or Judge David, whichever you want to be in this case. Um, as judge, I would let this go to trial. Um, so I would be with Judge Ho and Willet here because um, I think this is a bad teacher. <laughs> and like, you shouldn't be rewarded with qualified immunity when you're clearly a bad teacher, at least according to the facts alleged. Um, and I'm just I'm so I want that thumb so firmly on the scale of the First Amendment in high schools, even if then you're going to lose a trial, which look, her name's Marie. Marie, i i sorry you had a bad teacher for sociology class in high school. Um I had a really bad teacher for government at Memorial High School. If you went to Memorial High School from let's call it 1992 maybe even a little bit earlier to like 2012 2015, you know which government teacher I'm talking about. She was legit horrible. Uh yeah, that's what <laughs> high school's about, Marie, and sometimes you have to write down the pledge of allegiance. On the flip side, I will say in my government class um I refused to do several assignments Also, got a zero. And it is what, in fact, kept me out of the top 10% of my high school, which in Texas is a huge deal because it meant I basically could not go to the University of Texas. Um, The principal of my high school actually asked if I wanted her to intervene and change my grade in that course because I was clearly being retaliated against. Um, And I declined because, you know what? I'm going to wear that 89.4 that Killer Miller gave me. With pride so that I can talk about it 20 years later on a podcast. So, Marie, don't worry. Uh, Life turns out just fine for those who got a zero on an assignment from a teacher who is a flawed human just like the rest of us.
0: So, my message to Marie is I think you're on the way to proving that this teacher tried to get around West Virginia v. Barnett. And if you can get just a little bit further, I'm with you. I'm with you as a juror. I'm completely with Ho on the opinion. I'm open to being persuaded as a juror, as a matter of fact. But well, you know what we don't have? We don't have the deposition of the teacher. We don't have the testimony of the other students before us. There's a lot that we don't have, which is why a trial is a really good thing at 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 developing facts. And so we have a just a tiny little snapshot here. Of the facts, but my message to Marie is: if somebody's trying to get around West Virginia v. Barnett, which is maybe my favorite First Amendment precedent <laughs> of all time, yeah. yeah, I sometimes just quote it. In I used to just quote it in breathe in the
1: shower, like
0: <laughs> just oh, I just I Nancy look, late at night. Th-
1: you're like, hey Nancy, did you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> if there is any fixed star in our constitutional <laughs> constellation, Nancy, it is that no official, high <laughs> or petty. Um, yeah. I mean, every now and then I'm writing a brief. I've got writer's block. You just, West Virginia v. Barnett. Yeah. Here we go. So it's one of my favorite cases. And I think it's one that is, we, we have talked about cases where the Supreme Court has covered itself in shame because uh, that has happened. This is where the Supreme Court covered itself in glory because here we upheld a foundational First Amendment principle in the middle of World War II. So this was in the middle of World War II where we said that students did not have to stand and salute the flag, uh, could not be commanded to stand and salute the flag. In the middle of World War II when national unity was vital, the Supreme Court said, no, these American principles still apply. So that's one where the Supreme Court really covered itself in glory. And I am vigilant in defense of that precedent, Sarah. And so I'd be struck from the juror pool.
1: You would be. That precedent was written... (laughs) by Justice Jackson, a justice that we haven't talked about enough on this podcast. Look, he's not Harlan um, because he didn't have really, frankly, Harlan cases coming before him, uh, but a just a fantastic human being. He was uh, one of the prosecutors at the Nuremberg trial um, and goes on to become, he was Solicitor General, he was U.S. Attorney General, goes on to the Supreme Court, writes West Virginia v. Barnett, and is then replaced on the court by... Justice Marshall Harlan II, John Marshall Harlan's uh, uh, grandson. So that's pretty cool.
0: Well, and guess what? He also dissented in Korematsu.
1: Oh, so he, I mean, really, we should be talking about him more. He is he is Harlanesque. Uh, David, can I just leave you with? Um, so that teacher that I told you about, her bestie, uh, she picked as a substitute teacher for us one day. She clearly briefed the bestie on me. and uh so the substitute teacher asked me to step outside in the hallway with her which i guess i appreciated she didn't do it in front of the whole class and i'll never forget this because it was such a i'm proud of myself i guess and i look back and wonder um how this all happened in my little brain uh at 16 years old and she said um just because some guy slaps you on the ass doesn't mean you should be able to get him fired from his job And I said, Uh, "Uh, you have no clue what you are talking about in this classroom or in this hallway. And if it's all the same to you, I'd rather hear the nonsense in the classroom. And I walked back into the classroom. Wow. (laughs) So there's a little 1999 Me Too moment for you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. My goodness.
1: This is a female teacher telling me uh, that. Yeah a complaint that I brought against a male teacher should get me a lower grade in this totally unrelated class. So good. Oh
0: my goodness. That is unbelievable. Yeah. Well, gosh, um, the stories that could be told about
1: high school's hard, man. Not all teachers are perfect. They're flawed people. The students are flawed people. We're all just trying to find our way in this world. And isn't that the spirit of Christmas?
0: (laughs) (laughs) My goodness. Well, on a lighter note, I was just sort of playing out the what, playing out in my mind what would happen if I was summoned for jury duty in this case. Yeah, where I would be asked at voir dire something about you know compelled student speech, maybe. I Mean and you don't I, want to my,
1: lie, but you want to get on that jury.
0: I want to get on that jury, but I could f- probably find myself saying, "Hell hath no fury." If <laughs> hell, hell hell hath no fury, like. uh A First Amendment attorney seeing Barnett scorned. (laughs) And then I might be stricken.
1: Might be. I've tried to get on juries. I have failed every time.
0: I've never been on a jury. I'd love to be on a jury.
1: Me too.
0: All right. Well, that's it.
1: All right. This is our last live pod for the year.
0: Correct. The last live pod of the year. We're going to have a very special pod coming up on Thursday. Very special pod. You're really going to enjoy this. So please make time in your holiday schedule for our very special pod. And on our last live pod, we just wish you a very Merry Christmas, a very happy new year, happy holidays. Thank you for, um, for listening. Thank you for your feedback. Thank you for your comments. I really feel like we've kind of got a real AO community here, Sarah. We really have, and we really appreciate you guys. We really appreciate your comments, especially, um, you know, some of your your critiques. Uh, we are very open to critique as we walk through a lot of different issues, and really appreciate them. And as you know, we've, um, you know, we've made modifications and corrections multiple times as a result of really thoughtful feedback. So we appreciate that. We appreciate you. Have a very, very happy new year, and we will come back live in 2022.
1: a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on your childhood memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. And to be clear, every mom in my life has this frame. Every mom I've ever heard of has this frame. This is my go-to gift. My parents love it. I upload photos all the time. I'm just like bored watching TV at the end of the night. I'll hop on the app and put up the photos from the day. It's really easy. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code ADVISORY at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.